How many people stayed up last night to see in the new year? I did not, but anyone here? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. That's why you're in the second service. Saw that the first service. I assure you there was no one here the first service. It was crazy. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, we're going to be starting with verse 14. But just to kind of get us back on track, it's been several weeks. November 28th was the last time we were in the book of 1 Corinthians. Kind of took a break through the, book of, uh, through the month of December. And uh, as we talk through the gospel, through the eyes of Mary, and just to kind of get us back on track, just to remember where we were, where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We went through verse 13 the last time, and remembering that as we talked through that, Paul's confronting the Corinthians, right? He's confronting them on their pride, and even in that passage, he makes that comparison, and, and, and is sarcastic through that passage, referring to how they're living, and how they're thinking, and they thought they had it all together, and, and they, of course they don't. The, the only hope that they have is in Christ, but they were living that their hope was in themselves. And so Paul's confronting all of that. They're a divided people. They're man-centered people and not Christ-centered people. Um, Paul addresses all of that, and he talks about their pride. He compares their pride with the humility of the apostles and true followers of Jesus. And so that's what we're picking up with, okay? I know it's in the middle of a thought, right? But hopefully we can kind of gather in all of those memories of what we were looking at from uh, the other parts of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and kind of jump in a little bit in the midst of this thought, uh, starting with verse 14. So if you're there, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 14, uh, just in honor of God's word, let's stand together, just follow along as I read. I'm going to read verses 14 through the end of the chapter there. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. As we come into this new year, Lord, we're so grateful for your grace in our lives. And part of your grace is your word, God, that you have given to us. And what a privilege, what an honor it is to read it. What a, what a blessing it is to have it and to, to be able to put it into our hearts into our minds, to read it and think on it and to obey it, Lord. It's such a blessing. I pray that you'd help us this morning, God. Help us to desire as people who are your children, Lord, to live according to your word, to love your word, to live for your glory this year, God, to exalt you in all things. I pray for this time this morning, Lord. Apart from you, we can do Nothing, And so I beg you, Lord, to use this time to speak even now by your spirit to our hearts that we might know you better, 
that we might receive whatever it is that you want to say to us through this passage, God, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are ready, burning, Lord, towards you and towards obedience to you, God. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Looking at verse 14, Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now again, Paul's been confronting the Corinthians, right? He's been harsh with the Corinthians. He's been sarcastic with the Corinthians. He's, he's pointing out their faults. He's pointing out their pride. And, and I don't know about you, but whenever uh, people are uh, uh, confronted with things, there's a tendency uh, to rise up against that in our pride. And Paul's not looking for that. And he's also not looking that, that they would understand these confrontations as just being to embarrass them or to shame them. He says that here. I'm not, I'm not writing these things. I'm not confronting you. I'm not correcting you. I, I'm not being harsh with you just so that you would be ashamed. There's a greater purpose, and Paul's desire is that they would know and understand the ultimate purpose of his confronting them. It's not that they would be ashamed. It's not to shame them in front of others. Because you've got to imagine, right, this letter is being read. It's written by Paul. The church receives it. The leaders of the church are reading this uh, letter to the church, and all of the church is hearing this. And so as they're being confronted, you can imagine everyone knows who Paul's talking about. But we'll get to that later in the passage as he points out the, the faults and the pride and the arrogance and all of that. And he has already. So all of the people understand. They know who Paul's talking about. And so if you're the one or if you're one of the ones who, who Paul's addressing here and their sin and their divisiveness and their false teaching and all of the things, there's going to be a, uh, gonna be a shame that, that, that comes from that. Paul says, that's not my goal in this. I'm not doing this so that you would be ashamed. There's a, there's a greater purpose. My desire, Paul's desire is that they would repent, that they would change, not just for shame. That's not the goal in his confronting them. That's not the goal. They're, they're, they're probably going to be ashamed. They have reason to be ashamed, but that's, that's not what Paul's aim is here. He's engaged in something bigger than that, and he tells us what it is here. I, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's aim is, is something greater than shame. It's, it's Christian admonishment. It's Christian admonition. To admonish someone is to, to appeal to the mind by warning them. That's what Paul's doing. He's warning them. He's being harsh with them. He's confronting their sin. He's warning them, but that's an appeal. It's a, there's a desire. There's a purpose behind it. Christian admonition aims at the heart. Shame is just touching the feelings, right? When we feel ashamed... We feel embarrassed when we, f- it's just feeling caught, right? Uh, it's the difference between what Paul says in 2 uh, Corinthians 7, where there's a godly guilt and then there's just worldly guilt. And worldly guilt is when we, we feel caught. Someone caught us in our sin and we're just ashamed. We're embarrassed in front of those people. But that's not Paul's desire. He's aiming at their heart and that's what admonition is, is aiming at. There's, a, there's an aim at heart change. There's an aim at repentance. And Paul wants them to know, this is where I'm going. I'm warning you, but I have a, a desire that you would repent. He's being stern with them. He's using sarcasm. He's rebuking their sin, but he's telling them in the midst of that why he has been so harsh. He loves them, right? He says that. I, I love you as, 
I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. He loves them as a father loves his children and wants to see them change. A loving father looks at his kids, and if they're going the wrong direction, he doesn't ignore that. He doesn't overlook that. He doesn't avoid that. He admonishes. He, 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 he shows where they're wrong, and then he builds up. The book of 3 John, verse 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Love that verse. John's heart for his people, for the, the people that God had entrusted him to shepherd. And that's Paul's heart for the Corinthians. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The reason he's confronting, the reason he's addressing these things is because he wants them to be walking in truth. He's not just wanting to, to, to make them ashamed. He wants to see Christ in them. In fact, that's what he writes to uh, the church in Galatia. Paul writes to the Galatians, Somewhere in my notes, here it is. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's Paul's desire for Corinth. That's Paul's desire for those who are his spiritual children, that Christ would be formed in them. Not that they'd be ashamed, not that they'd just be embarrassed, not that he would win the debate, the argument but that they would be formed into the image of Christ, that Christ would be formed in them. And that's his aim, that's his desire here. I think, I love the new year. I love, um, at the end of the year, I don't know about you, but for me it causes um, me to think back and look back over this past year. And as the year's coming to an end, uh, my usual routine is to look back over and think, uh, how, how have I seen the Lord work? How have I seen sanctification? Have I seen sanctification in my own life? Is God forming in me more of the image of his son? What has God done this past year that points to his glory and not my glory? And just evaluating through all of these different areas of my life. Am I living for his kingdom or am I living for my kingdom? And I was thinking through this week and praying through and I was praying for my kids and as I was praying for them, genuinely from my heart, praying for my children, God, my desire is that they would be with you more than that they would be with me. My ultimate desire is whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes, and I'm not praying that God would take my kids, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But my desire is more that they would be with Jesus than that they would be with me. And that's Paul's desire for the people of the, as, as, as their spiritual father. His desire is not that, that, that he would be magnified, but that Christ would be magnified. And that they would be transformed and conformed more into the image of Jesus than into anything else. Into the image of themselves. And that's what he's dealing with people who are living for themselves and not for Christ. He's not... He's not just criticizing them. He's not just calling them names and putting them down as some parents do. That's what Ephesians 6, 4 tells us, right? When Paul's addressing fathers, he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And that's, his, that's what he's saying to them. As my children, I'm not just writing these things to provoke you to anger. I'm not just writing these things to shame you. I have a desire. I have a heart for you. I love you. Just as a good father obeys that verse in Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your children to anger. He's not seeking to provoke the Corinthians to anger. Admonition points out where, they're, where they've gone off of a path, but then seeks to build up and encourage through the truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul's doing. 
He's not just criticizing and putting, putting them down and, 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 and just aiming at their shame. He's preaching the gospel and he's pointing them to Christ and showing them the hope and the truth of the gospel and how they can grow. And that's really the, that's the, really the rest of Ephesians 6.4, right? As, as fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul, as a spiritual father, is demonstrating that verse. As, 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 as literal fathers, as literal parents, we're called not to, to um, provoke our kids to anger, but to build them up, to encourage them. We're not just called to name call. We're not just called to shame our kids. We're, not, we're called to, to, to disciple them and train them by God's word. And in the same way, we see that lived out in Paul, even towards his spiritual children. I love you, Paul says, and so my heart is not that you'd be ashamed, it's that you'd be admonished, that you'd be warned, and that you would turn to Christ and repent. The hope is in the gospel. He goes on in verse 15. For through you, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That word guides um, can be translated tutors. For though you have countless tutors, and and it it referred to a specific tutor, one who would uh, go with a child, and and usually it was a slave. Sometimes there were freed men who would walk with the child from uh, very young up through adolescence, and they would walk with the child and train them and teach them manners and teach them uh, their grammar and and even confront them and, and, and exhort them when needed. And so Paul's saying, spiritually, you may have countless tutors, spiritually, You may have countless people who are teaching you and admonishing you and pouring into you, but you only have one father. And just like in their context, as they would think through these tutors, these guides who would walk alongside of their children, what Paul's saying is, yes, the guide, the tutor, he's respected and he's loved by the kids, but he doesn't have the same influence as the father does. The father always had more influence over the child than the tutor had influence over the child. And Paul's saying, as your spiritual father, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying to you. Hear what my aim is. Hear hear that I'm seeking to your heart and listen. He's using this picture for them. He had had labored for 18 months. Remember from, from Acts. He labored for 18 months in Corinth preaching the gospel and establishing the church there. So in a very real sense, he is their spiritual father. God had used him to plant the church. And in saying that, he's not saying he's taking credit for their faith. He, he, he understands their faith is not because of him. He's just been used by God. That's, that's why he says here, uh, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's giving glory for their faith to Jesus Christ, not to himself. He's just an instrument, even as he says earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, I planted and Apollos watered. I'm, I'm nothing. God is everything because he gave the growth. But he understands that God used him to plant and to spread the seed of the word. And and in that, they've come to know Christ by God using him as an instrument. And in that, he feels this responsibility and love and relationship towards them to teach them and to admonish them. 
Verse 16 goes on and he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. I urge you then, be imitators of me as your spiritual father, as the one who labored and preached the word among you and lived among you. Imitate me. Now we could read that and that could sound pretty arrogant. Pretty proud for for Paul to say, imitate me. Why didn't he just say, imitate Christ? Because in imitating Paul, they would find that they were imitating Jesus Christ. Because his life was so wrapped up in Christ. This whole thing is about Christ. It's not about him. There's a a natural expectation for a child to, to imitate or mimic. That's where we get the word mimic is from the word that's translated imitate here. To copy or imitate their father, right? We just expect that. A kid is going to eventually, even at a young age, they're going to copy their dad. They're going to imitate their dad. Some dads may not be worthy of imitation. And and so we we read that and we think, why not say imitate Christ? That's what he's saying. Paul's life is so wrapped up in Christ and in the gospel that for him to say to others, imitate me, is to say to them, imitate Christ. That's why later on in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. If they're imitating him, if they're mimicking him, if they're living the way that Christ lives, what they're going to, or the the way that Paul lives, what they're going to find is they're living the way that Christ has called them to live. They're living like Christ by imitating Paul. And that's his desire for them. This is incredibly interesting, though. I urge you then be imitators of me. Now we're four weeks, five weeks away from preaching through verses 6 through 13. But that's not the case for what they've just heard. Okay, so Paul's saying be imitators of me. Let's jump up to verse 9. Be imitators of me. God has exhibited me as last of all. Like a man sentenced to death. Be imitators of me. I've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Be imitators of me. I'm a fool for Christ's sake. Be imitators of me. I am weak. Be imitators of me. I'm held in disrepute. Be imitators of me. I hunger and I thirst. I'm poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Be imitators of me. I labor working with my own hands. Be imitators of me. When I'm reviled, I bless. Be imitators of me. When I'm persecuted, I endure. Be imitators of me. When I'm slandered, I entreat. Be imitators of me. I have become and still am like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's a pick-me-up. I mean, Paul, that's why we can know that Paul saying to them, be imitators of me is actually saying, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. My life is absorbed in Christ. My life is wrapped up in Christ. So imitate me, follow me, your spiritual father. He goes on in verse 17, he says, that is why I sent you, Timothy. 
my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. It's believed that Paul, in, in saying that is why I sent you, Timothy is writing on behalf of the reader, not the writer. He's the writer. But writing uh, this, he had not yet sent Timothy, but would have sent Timothy by the time that it was read in the presence of the congregation. Okay, so they, yeah, that makes sense. All right, good. You guys all look with affirming faces. He says, that's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful. I'm sending you, my beloved and faithful child. Timothy, one that I love just as I love you. Timothy, who's been with me and seen my ways and how I've walked. And I'm sending him to you to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul had lived with them for 18 months. He had preached the gospel to them. He had lived the gospel in front of them. But they're forgetful people just like we're forgetful people. And part of their problem, part of our problem is we tend to forget That's why in in conversations with people, in conversations with myself, and and in preaching, the thing that I continue to say is we ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day because we're no different than the Corinthians. Paul had come to the Corinthians. He had preached the gospel to them, and they believed the gospel. They believed that it was nothing that they could do. There was no merit of their own. And they threw themselves on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he had accomplished on the cross. They believed that. They surrendered their lives to him. They saw it lived out in Paul. And then Paul left. And they began to forget They begin to forget the way that he lived. They begin to forget the truth of the gospel, that it's not about them. And I'm the same way. If I'm not preaching the gospel to myself day in and day out, I begin to forget. And so I get this thinking that, yes, Jesus saved me by his blood. We just sang that there's nothing but the blood of Jesus. My righteousness cannot be given to me or earned in any other way except through the blood of Jesus. But I forget that. And so I'll think back on the time that I surrendered my life to Christ, and that's good. But then I'll stop thinking and and meditating and remembering the truth of the gospel. And I'll start adapting this lifestyle that somehow thinks that I can earn or add to the righteousness of Christ that's already been credited to me. I can't do that. I cannot live in a way that earns more righteousness. I've been credited with full righteousness in Christ. Why? Because of what Jesus did, not because of what I could ever do. And the Corinthians are in the same place. They've forgotten, and so now they're living these arrogant, prideful, divisive lives, lives that are based on works, not on grace. We're the same way. If we don't continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, we forget. And they're forgetful people just like we're forgetful people. They need and we need to continue to preach the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to do and to be what we could never do and never be. Jesus came to live a perfect life. Jesus came to be sacrificed for our sins, to bear and drink the fullness of the wrath of God, to take my punishment on him. So that if we believe in him, not earn it, but believe in him, we'll be credited with perfect righteousness and all of our wrongdoings, all of our sins, past, present and future will be wiped away. That's the gospel. 
But when we forget that, when we're not thinking that, then we begin to live a life of works that never saved us in the first place and never can ever, 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 ever save us. And that's where these Corinthians are at now. So Paul says, I'm sending you, Timothy, to remind you what I taught, to remind you how I lived among you. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. As I teach them everywhere in every church. And part of what Timothy's going to remind them and, and show them and, and tell them as an eyewitness to these things is that Paul didn't, Paul didn't preach the gospel and then leave Corinth and slack off. This is his pattern of life. His life is the gospel. He's living for Christ. And so as he goes from place to place to place to place, he's preaching the gospel and he's living the gospel. And Timothy will be witness to the continued genuineness of Paul's teaching and ways. It says, my beloved and faithful child, Timothy, will remind you of my ways in Christ. My ways taught and my ways lived. In Christ, these two things are inseparable. You can't separate our, our talking from our living. Words and deeds match up in Christ. If you are in Christ, your words and your deeds match up. That's what James was talking about in chapter 2 when he says, you say um, that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, he says, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because the verse right before that, verse 17, he says, faith apart from works is dead. It's not really faith. And so Timothy's coming to remind them, look, Paul's life, is his teaching and his life matched up because in Christ, that's what happens. We're not just talking about Christ, we're living Christ. And Paul was an example of that for them. And so he could say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That was Paul's example. That was how he lived. He talked and he lived the same thing, both for the gospel. That's not the case with, with some of the people in Corinth. And he addresses that in verse 18. He says, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Now remember, in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul uh, notes that he's received a report from Chloe's people. We're not sure what kind of report. Don't know if she, uh, if it was written to Paul or if it was brought to Paul in person or or how it was reported to him. But he's received a report, and so he's he's operating off of knowledge. He's operating off of knowing how. Uh, the Corinthians are living, what's being said in Corinth and what's being done in Corinth. So he's not just making this stuff up and, and assuming, well, this is what's happening in the church. He knows what's going on. And so he's, he's dealing with real issues that have been reported to him. And so when he, when he says this, that there are some arrogant people who are, are acting and, and speaking as if he would not come there, he's, he's already received a report of that. He knows the circumstances surrounding it. And so we have some of the leaders in the Corinthian congregation who are arrogant. 
They're speaking out against Paul and claiming that, that Paul wouldn't dare come up against them. Just pride and arrogance. Paul would never come here and, and go face to face, toe to toe with me. Or with us, however it was happening. And Paul answers these arrogant people in verse 19. Now imagine, okay, just imagine being those people, right? You've said it. I mean, you've verbalized it. It's obviously been public. It's been made public. You've said these things against Paul. You've been critical of Paul. You've even said things like he would never come toe-to-toe with us. It's, it's a public thing. And now this letter is being read in public, and it's being addressed in public. You just wonder, like, how does that feel, right? I mean, how is that... Um, slouching or I don't know just it's entertaining for me okay you can enjoy it later but he says in verse 19 he says but I will come to you soon now Paul answers them his desire is to come to them soon and but the desire we know from already in this passage this not not that he can go toe-to-toe with them his point in coming is not that he would prove himself right it's the gospel, he loves them. He cares about them. He wants to see Christ formed in them. And so his coming is out of love. He wants to see repentance take place. He doesn't want to see them continue down these divisive ways. You don't have to turn there. You can look later. But we know from chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, his intention, his desire is to come to them after passing through Macedonia. He says there that he hopes to stay with them for the winter. So he's making plans. He has a plan and desire to come to them. But, but he has surrendered his life and his will to Christ. His life is not his own. And so when he says, I, um, I will come to you, verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, he has an understanding that God's will supersedes his will. And we know from the book of Acts, right, Paul made some plans to go to places and it says, but the spirit prevented me from going there. And Paul um, is guided by the Holy Spirit and, and, and what he does is, is what God wants him to do. There, there's, there's times when he would plan to go somewhere and God would prevent that. And so wisely he says to them and humbly he says to them, I do want to come, I do plan on coming. I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord wills all of that is just revealing god or paul's heart for the lord he's serving the lord and so just as james encourages us to do he says if the lord wills it's good for us to to look at james um, writing on that in james 4 in verse 13 james Writing says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What does James say is, is the cause, is the initiator of making plans, not thinking of God's will or God's plans? What's the initiator of that? Pride, right? You're arrogant. You're boasting. That's what he says. The reason that you make plans and don't consider the Lord's will is because you're proud. 
And you're not thinking of him. And so again, even from James' words, we see the humility of Paul. It would be easy to read through this and think, gosh, is Paul struggling with pride a little bit? He's saying things like, imitate me, and, and, and is he putting himself above the Corinthians? Not, not at all. We see his humility even in the way he talks. It's all about Christ. If Christ wills, I'll come. My desire is love for you and admonition that you would see in your heart and in your mind what God has called you to, and you would repent and turn to him. It's not about Paul. It's not about getting things even or right. It's not defending or clearing his own name. It's about Christ being formed in these people that he loves. He says there in verse 19 that one of his purposes in coming is to examine these arrogant people, not by their words, but by their works, by their power. Talk is cheap. That's what Paul's saying. Talk is cheap. You can get up and make all the claims you want. What what does your life look like? Paul has demonstrated the power of the gospel, not by simply saying things, but by living them. That's why he can say to them, imitate me, and it means imitate Christ. Because his, his life is matched up with his preaching. His life matches up with his words. He's demonstrated the power of the gospel in his life. He says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. It changes people. That's what that means. The gospel changes people. It changes them completely. It's powerful. And when we believe the gospel, when we surrender to Christ, we're not just people whose talk changes. We're new people. We're completely different, changed people, changed by the power of God through the gospel. He says these arrogant people will be evaluated by how the gospel has changed them, how it's working in and through them, not just by their prideful words. He says in verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God refers to God's present reigning over his people and demonstrating his power in their lives. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, uh, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's, that's the power of the gospel. It's not just uh, a modified person. It's not just a person who's learned new ways of talking. It's a new person. God's power changes us completely. The gospel doesn't affect our lips only. It affects our whole heart, our whole life, our whole thinking. That's the power of God working in our lives. It's not that he's he's just taken and, and chipped away some of the stone on our heart. It says that he's taken our stony heart and replaced it with a flesh heart. We're completely changed. In Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul says, uh, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. What is that? That's the power of the gospel to change us. My whole life in myself, I have tried to not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I have failed every single time. But when God gives me his Holy Spirit, he empowers me to live a different way. And when I'm walking by the Spirit and not trying to overcome sin by the power of Tony, then I see his power, the power of the gospel demonstrated in and through me. Because it's not by me or by my might. 
It's by the power of the gospel. And Paul had demonstrated that. The reason he can say, imitate me in a way that exalts Christ and not himself is because the power that God's kingdom consists of had changed him. The point of him, him saying this is, to the Corinthians and to us, is our actions should match our words. Talk is cheap. The kingdom of God is not demonstrated in talk. It's demonstrated in power. God didn't just save us and change us. He continues to save us and change us and form us into the likeness of Christ. That's the work of his spirit inside of us. That's the power of God to to mold us into a reflection of Jesus Christ. We can't do that ourselves. Apart from the power of God and, 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 and working in us through the power of the Spirit, we are hopeless to change. But Paul says, by the power of God, we can change. And God's kingdom isn't revealed. God's kingdom doesn't, con- uh, doesn't consist in talk. It consists in power. Let me ask us some questions before we finish out this passage. If you claim to be a child of the kingdom, if you claim to be in Christ, just think through these things, okay? Am I talking? Am I all talk? Or is the power of the Spirit at work in me to make my life match up with what I'm saying? That's the case for Paul. It's why he can say, imitate me. It's because the power of the Spirit is at work within him so that he's not just talking he believes he believes what he's saying and god's spirit has changed him and empowered him and his life is matching up with his talk am i just all talk or is the power of the spirit working in me to to make me and shape me more into the image of jesus christ am i displaying the gospel and how i live and how i how i do talk but in how i live and follow that up Am I displaying the gospel in how I parent? Am I displaying the gospel in how I love my wife? Am I displaying the gospel in how I love my husband? Am I displaying the gospel in how I work? Am I displaying the gospel in the things that I do, not just in the things that I say when I'm around the right people? That's what's going on in Corinth. A lot of talk, but no power. And Paul says, when I come, I'm not going to evaluate talk. I'm going to evaluate power. How's the gospel changed you? How's the gospel working in you? What what's difference has the gospel made? This week I was thinking back over this last year and, and how am I living for, for Christ and, and what is the aim of my life? And, and uh, years ago I had written out some resolutions inspired by Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, confess to you I haven't pulled them out for a long time. And, uh, and so just pulling those out again and reading over them and, and, and getting, printing out Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and just being challenged and inspired by this man who's, whose life was wrapped up in Christ. And, and he, made it, he made it his aim. He was disciplined. He made a plan to follow the Lord. That's what I love about it. It's like uh, the, he, he consistently would read through every week all of these resolutions. Why? So that he would remember just like the Corinthians needed Timothy to come and remind them so that he would remember these commitments of how he wanted to live for the glory of Christ. 
And I came across this one that he had written. He says, Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Is that how we're living? Are we just talking about the kingdom? Are we just talking about the gospel? Are we living as we will wish we had lived when we come to die? He has another one. He has like four of them that are, that are along that lines. One of them that's, um, I may mess up the old English, but um, resolve to live um, as I should wish if I had seen the happiness of heaven or the torments of hell. Is that how we're living? But here's the thing and here's the hope. The hope of living that way is not that we get to see the happiness of heaven or the torments of hell. The hope of living that way is what Christ did on the cross and purchased for us. That he has enabled it now. That we don't have to wait to see what heaven is like or what hell would be like. To live for his glory and by the power of the gospel. We don't have to wait. He purchased that for us. And that's Paul's desire for the Corinthians is they would see that and that they would repent. We see in verse 21 this call for repentance. What do you wish, he says? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, don't get this wrong, okay? Don't, don't, don't attach love to spirit of gentleness and not to with a rod. Both are loving. Both is a love and a desire to see them uh, conform to the likeness of Christ. What he's saying is, I'm giving you the choice. I'm putting it on you. What do you wish? Will you repent? If you repent, then it's my joy that I get to come to you in love with a spirit of gentleness. That's his desire. I mean, we see that all through this letter. My desire is to come to you and find you repentant. Because I love you. You're my children, my spiritual children. But he says to them, what do you wish? But if they don't repent, he will lovingly come to them with discipline. That's what he's talking about with the rod. He's talking about discipline and coming and disciplining those who are causing this divisiveness, who are uh, sinning. We'll get to that where he, he's, he's telling the church to do that. But he says to them, what do you wish? How will you respond to the truth of the gospel? How will you respond to what I've written to you and how I've admonished you. That's what he's saying there. Their response will determine how he comes. As we come into this new year, just in closing, new new years um, tend to bring new hope, right? People had a lousy year. They look forward to the new year, right? Brings new hope and all that stuff that's hopeful. But that's only true if we're repentant. That's only true if in Christ we come and we repent. If we look back over the the last year and we see things and and ways that we've not lived for Christ. The hope is in repentance. The hope is in grace. The hope is in determining that I'm going to live for Christ and not for myself. By the power of the gospel. And so as we, we wrap this up, just, just, to give, just to encourage us, you understand as Paul is writing to these arrogant men who are making these claims against him as a follower of Christ, that was Paul. That's what Paul did. 
Paul was an arrogant man who made claims against Christians and went so far as to find them and imprison them and beat them and kill them. He saw. And then one day on the road to Damascus, Christ appears and the gospel comes into him and changes him completely. That's why he can say, imitate me, because he was an arrogant person who was out to kill Christians, and the gospel changed him completely. It didn't just change Paul's talk. It changed his life. And now his talk and his life are guided by the word of God and not his own will, not his own plans. And so as we go into this new year, is your talk and life guided as Paul's is guided? By the word of God, is there a plan? And even thinking about this, this new year, a plan of living a determined life for Christ so that your, your life matches up with your words. You can't do that apart from God's word. And so I would even ask, I would add to that, have you decided how you will read the Bible? If we just go into the new year and think that my carelessness and slackness is just going to, it's 2012, and if the Mayans are right, then I need to get busy, right? <laughs> and so that my, my lack of determination is just going to miraculously, because it's a new year, it's just going to well up inside of me, and oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up in 2012, and I'm going to read the Bible every single day, not without being determined to do so, not without a plan. We know what hopes of New Year's. And just to let you know, this has nothing to do with New Year's resolutions. We know what those are. That's just our hopes of changing our life for the next two weeks. <laughs> what is our plan? What are we deciding that, that, would, would, that we would give everything to Christ? This has, it's not... New Year's resolution, it's a life of faith. It has to do with faith and the power of God to accomplish in and through us far more than we could all, ever ask or imagine. It has to do with the power of God to work in us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. It has to do with the power of God to, to work in us so that we might live in a way that we might say to others, follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is not just for Paul. The gospel does, just doesn't transform Paul into a person who can say that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what it should be for all of us. As we set out into this new year that we would imitate Christ so that others, as they see us and as we communicate with them, we can lovingly look at them and say, follow me. And as you do, you're going to be following Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace that we are completely unworthy of. We don't deserve you, Lord. We don't deserve your grace. We didn't deserve for Jesus to come and and sac be sacrificed for our sins. We didn't deserve for, for you to credit us with righteousness just because we believe that your son did what he did. It's all grace, Lord. 
It's all grace. And it's grace that we are alive right now. It's grace that you have brought us into this new year. It's grace that that you didn't wipe us out in last year. That we would have been worthy of. That we would have merited. But your grace, Lord, is abundant. And your grace is free. And so, Lord, I pray for your help that you would remind us right now of the gospel. For some of us, once again, we would throw ourselves at your feet. Surrendering our will again for yours, Lord. That we would be a people who are changed by the power of the gospel into a people who reflect, who display Christ to this world. People who are not just talking, but who are living by the power of the gospel. Your kingdom, Lord, does not consist in talk. It consists in power. And we want to be children of your kingdom. We want to be changed. We want to be people who others can follow and be led to Jesus. And so we ask for your help. I ask for your help right now, God, to do what I cannot do cannot awaken I cannot awaken my own heart I cannot awaken other hearts I pray for those who are here who have never truly surrendered their lives trusting you Jesus for what you have done and what you are able to do to bring forgiveness and new life in yourself that you would bring faith to believe that we would be a body that glorifies you, that exalts you in what we do this year, both together in this place and as we go into this world, that we would be as stars that shine in the universe, displaying the glory of you, God. We pray for your glory, and in Christ's name, amen.